You'll have a house full of other 50-year-old youngsters. Why would you want your decrepit old mother there? I think you know why. And quite apart from the fact that you improve any occasion with your presence, your attendance not only as my mother, but symbolically as queen, would be transformative for Camilla. She will never be fully embraced by the public until she has your approval. But how can I possibly give my approval when I don't approve? It's nothing personal. I'm sure she's very nice. Rather more than that. It's a matter of principle. Two perfectly good marriages, two perfectly happy families have been broken up by this. Love, mummy, love? I don't want to debate this any longer. I'm going to be in Derbyshire. Now, was there anything else? Because I think this one could really use my attention. Thank you. Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman and I'm very excited to be back once again with a new season of the podcast to follow the sixth season of the Netflix original series, The Crown. We'll follow the show episode by episode, taking you behind the scenes of the final season of this epic drama with the hugely talented creatives involved, with everyone from the directors and the research team to the dialect and voice coach, and of course, writer and creator, Peter Morgan. Across this season, I'll sit down with cast members from Imelda Staunton to Dominic West, Elizabeth Debicki to Salem Dow. And of course, as this is the final season of The Crown, we'll be looking back and saying farewell to this groundbreaking royal drama. So let's kick off with episode one of season six, titled Persona Non Grata. We begin season six, where we left off at the end of season five, the summer of 1997. Now a year divorced, Prince Charles advances his plan to legitimise his relationship with Camilla in the public eye and organises a glittering 50th birthday party for her that he hopes the Queen will attend. Meanwhile, Diana is determined to bypass the event and takes William and Harry to Saint-Tropez for a holiday courtesy of Mohammed al-Fayed, who hopes to engineer romance between the princess and his son Dodie. But there's a small complication. Dodie himself is already engaged to someone else. We'll cover specific events and scenes that feature in this episode, so if you haven't managed to watch episode one yet, I suggest you do it now or very soon. Coming up on this episode of The Crown, the official podcast, I sit down with our queen, Imelda Staunton. My favourite times of the day are between action and cut. The Crown's head of research, Annie Salzberger, explains Prince Charles's big plans for Camilla Parker Bowles's 50th birthday. He gets the press to come. He stage manages her entrance. He tells the press in a way he never has before, here's where you should stand, and a launch. It's supposed to be a launch for her. Director of this episode, Alex Gabassi, tells us how a piano inspired a creative scene. If there is a piano in this room, let's check. Has Diana ever played piano? And then wonderful research department said, oh yeah, she did play. Now, as has become customary on each season of The Crown, the official podcast, we kick off with writer and showrunner Peter Morgan. 
I was lucky enough to be invited back to his home for an in-depth conversation as he wrapped up the final season of a show which has been a decade in the making for Peter. Naturally, I was curious about how he was feeling as the crown was coming to an end. Peter, I'm very sad. This is our last sitting. What? <laughs> You're supposed to say me too. I, I, I'm lost for words. I'm sad not to be able to hang out with you guys, but I'm probably not sad that we've reached the end. I think it was time. How are you feeling? How do I feel? I don't entirely know yet, but pretty relieved. I mean, positive relieved. Yeah. Uh, you know, like when people say, what's the difference between good pain and bad pain? Uh, I feel good pain. <laughs> do you mind if I take you back to the beginning, though, just to kind of reflect slightly? Because I was interested to know what your, I guess, what your vision for The Crown was way back when you started and has it met expectation? I think that it's exactly what we set out to do. As a consequence, I'm sort of stunned, but it is actually, we need to do this. It'll probably take about 10 years. We did exactly what we said we were going to do, and we got to the end somehow. Done everything you said to do? I think so. In terms of everything's gone exactly as you want, and yet nothing is quite as you predicted. And it manages to be both those things in equal measure. Making a show like this is tough in so many different ways. But I think this is as harmonious and as cooperative a, a group of people that could go for a decade mm. as we could have found. So I, in that sense, I'm incredibly grateful and particularly grateful to, there are three or four key people who have made it entirely possible without them and their ability to, you know, pastoral care. And because really it isn't a mental thing. It's an emotional thing. How do you get through a decade? It's really an endurance mm. thing. And endurance is not so much about your strength or your fitness. It's about emotional health and good practice and being able to create the right circumstances in which to do good work. And I'm not the person who deserves any credit for that. I mean, you know, that's other people around me. It's worked and it's worked beautifully and it's worked harmoniously and everybody's reached the finishing line as friends and everybody looks forward to bumping into each other. Talking about emotions, season six, it's an amazing journey that you're taking on as a, as a viewer and a fan of the, the show. But for you, the vision for season six, what, what did you need it to do with it being the last one? Or did you not view it like that? I always knew, funny enough, the, the big thing that was hanging over me all the time was there is no logical way to end this. Mm -hmm. I never wanted it to end where we are today. So it was very hard. I, I wanted to remain as close to 20 years away from present day as I could so that there would be distance and so that it would feel historical rather than journalistic. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we had to deal with the fact that in the middle of last season, our protagonist died. And so one had to deal with that. And so, and so it presented me with, just from the writing point of view, quite, quite a few structural challenges. It was tricky because I was really clear all the way through that I didn't want to go beyond the six seasons and give each queen two seasons, you know, mm. to, uh, and, and the, as it were, the speed of the progress of the show to be about a decade a season. So all that meant that we were sort of coming out somewhere around 2003, 2004, 2005 as a logical endpoint. And so then you go back and you look at that period and you think, well, is there anything here that feels like a like a climax, like an end, like a full stop? It was a cerebral technical challenge. It yeah. was engineering work rather than emotional work in that sense. Yeah. Where do we find our core characters in episode one? We've got 
Diana offered the boys to Saint-Tropez for their holiday, yeah. courtesy of Mohammed al-Fayed. Charles is trying to legitimize his relationship with Camilla in the public with the 50th birthday, really hoping that the Queen is going to attend. And Fayed too has kind of got this sort of plan of trying to bring together Diana and Dodie. You know, small complication about him already being in a relationship. It's not going to stand in his way. Already having proposed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's kind of, there's real light and fun in this episode, I think. And I think as an, for the audience who know what lies ahead, it's a really healthy approach to watching the episode in a way, if that makes sense. Knowing that Diana is going to die in this season, and I think we all wondered what happened. I remember at the time reading in a newspaper on an almost daily basis, she was on an aeroplane. I think we worked out in the last five or six weeks of her life, she flew something like 13 or 14 times. It was very, very restless and very frantic, her, her moving around. Mm. And I remember that you would just open the newspapers and it, there'd always be a story about Diana. And she was always in a different place. All I remember thinking was there was a lot of sunshine, a lot of George Michael soundtrack, <laughs> a lot of um, English patient soundtrack. And I think I didn't really know who Dodie Fayed was. Interesting. And yeah, and I wondered what, what the nature of that relationship was. I know we were being told mostly by Mohammed Al Fayed that they were, you know, in love, that it was a love for the ages, that she was pregnant, that none of that quite rang true. Mm. And they felt like an unlikely couple. And so, you know, actually, I wanted to get behind the cabin doors, as it were, to try and understand what the nature of that relationship was. I mean, the conversations aren't a matter of public record, but all their travel, all their movements. When you get down to the detail, if you sort of think to yourself, well, what what was their relationship really like? What would what, what the temperature of their conversations? What would it have felt like to listen to them? And mm -hmm. you, you have to use your imagination. You have to guess. But you try and join the dots. And that particular six-week period, we could really clearly identify it. On the Tuesday, she flew there. She flew there at lunchtime. They flew there in the Alfaya jet. They were met by this driver, that driver, that driver, they and this bodyguard, they went to this restaurant. They went there, they went there. Because of the paparazzi, her every movement was filmed. So really all we all we didn't have was the dialogue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the you know, or the conversation or the dialogue or whatever you want to call it. And but with all that, you can pretty much, once you've got that many dots, the distance to join the dots becomes shorter and shorter. The more dots you've got, the simpler it is to join them. And I, I think very quickly, you know, a picture of a relationship of convenience, of great affection, of probably of laughter, of some degree of irresponsibility, but also underlining it all, really profound misalignment, where everybody was not really doing what they really wanted to be doing, and they weren't really following their own best interests. Whether that's Dodie or Diana, they, they both seem to be tragic pawns in a bigger narrative. And so once you get a handle on that, you think, oh, I think I can write this because this is sympathetic to both of them. And then for the people outside that particular bubble, well, it was just like what it was like for us. We were all learning about it at the same time. I don't think they had any particular insight in Buckingham Palace that we didn't have. In fact, I think if we were reading newspapers, we knew what they knew. Yeah. It's so interesting you say that you didn't, you know, you didn't really know who Dodie was because what you, you have done in the show 
is your interpretation of him and also of Muhammad al-Fayed. And it's something that we talked about before that you felt was kind of really important because, you know, their narrative for most people was written by the tabloid press. Whereas to write them a truth based on the brilliant research that your team have done to give you to base that on. Why was that important for you? Whatever your starting point is, you've got to admit being Muhammad al-Fayed's son, it's got to be quite challenging, his firstborn son, right? Uh, Because Muhammad al-Fayed is such a strong, determined front foot. So that if you are in any way, I mean, you see it often with the children of particularly driven, particularly successful tycoons or parents or tycoons as parents, right? It's not easy. And so I felt for him. I felt for him that, that you know, those were hard boots to fill or, or at least that the expectations on him would be uh, unfair and unrealistic. Nobody could tell me a single negative thing about Dodi Fight. I mean, a lot of people, I do know people who felt that he was, you know, he was a distracting influence on film sets and so forth, but everybody said he was kind and everybody said he was generous and everybody said he was a bit lost. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, that I, I like that, and I like the fact that he's also displaced. He's part Egyptian, part American. And the movie industry, particularly around the fringes, attracts a lot of these slightly lost characters who come in with money, and in his case, his father's money, trying to find a role for themselves. And outside of their bubble, in this first episode, we have Charles with Camilla's 50th birthday party and desperate for his mother's attention. And it's the the kind of bookend of the episode with her distance from that, you know, and at the start she's like, well, you know, we can't come. But then that, the way it's bookended by her calling to ask how the party was. That was a very last minute. Was it? Rewrite. Yeah. That that was an additional, that was one of those moments of uh, where you think, oh no, that story isn't finished yet. I remember saying, I remember watching a screening, but thinking, no, no, that story isn't over. And where's the queen? She's dropped out of this. And, always got and to come so back to the Queen. Yeah, always go back to the Queen. Yeah. <laughs> so when you're thinking about that then, in terms of I need to finish this story or I need to bring her back in, why that? Why was why was that the right scene or the right sentiment almost in a way to bring in? Because I'm touched whenever I think of her struggling to be a mother. And because of all the things that the job has required of her. And because of all the things that the job necessarily means that her eldest son represents to her. So, you know, it's a daily reminder of her death. And, and you know, that, that families are hard enough <laughs> without having that <laughs> hovering around. And um, we, we always think of her as never putting a foot wrong. So I'm always quite touched whenever I see her struggling. You know, she... She coped with the pressures, the extraordinary pressures of being queen so brilliantly. And I think part of, you know, the, as the Prince of Wales, as the heir to the throne, he can't just marry anybody who he wants to, it, it, you know, particularly with a family living in the shadow of the abdication in the way that they did. And, and so the suitability of his marrying Camilla, and, you know, now seen from the benefit of this hindsight, with her now so confidently called Queen Camilla by everybody. You know, it's... But that was unthinkable, unimaginable back in 1997. How long ago is it, really? No, not not for someone lying. (laughs) (laughs) It is a lifetime ago to some, but not to us. (laughs) 
Coming up soon, I'll be speaking with director Alex Gabassi. But now, head of research on The Crown, Annie Salzberger, has been a big part of this podcast and we absolutely love having her on. Before we dive into season six with Annie, I wanted to go back to where her journey with The Crown began. It's 10 years for me. Wow. So I started in November 2013. I was just asked to do a few weeks with Pete as he Whoa. as he um, tried to figure out how he wanted to adapt the audience into some sort of TV show. And he seemed to like me enough where it was sort of, okay, I guess I can keep invoicing and showing up to your house. <laughs> and And that was back when I was the only full-time researcher. We had a, a few other members of the team. I think there was just five of us. It was amazing that the show has become what it has. I think we were really happy and taken aback, um, flabbergasted at the response to series one. And luckily that response meant that I could say, guys, I'm going insane. I can't be everywhere at once doing research. So please, can we get a team? I mean, it's been the pinnacle of my career so far. There's no doubt. Working with a writer who respects and relies on very publicly research, not just what are the historical facts, but what can you tell me about character? Mm. And how can we draw together themes from these events? You know, it's real creative thinking, and he has given us enormous scope and vision for our jobs. Um, and I hope has has taught other producers and writers and showrunners that research is a really core fundamental part of any show. It doesn't matter if it's set in the past. As you know, I'm a big fan of the work that you do on research. It's such a pivotal part of the Crown production creative process and being able to have these insightful conversations with you is wonderful. And what I'm also looking forward to is the fact that you are going to bring in some of your team that we can meet as well. Yeah, we're going to bring in every single member of my research team. Yes! Yeah! Which I'm thrilled about because, I mean, listen, it's really nice, like, you know, I've been able to be the voice of this team and to get more people to understand what research does. But there's no way I could do this alone. <laughs> this is a mammoth undertaking. And I have a full female team. They are extraordinary. And each one, because we didn't have to write Series 7, mm-hmm. each one, I think, got even more time with sort of special subjects this year. Where are we at the start of the season then? How are we starting the final season of The Crown? So we pick up pretty much where we left off. Um, almost directly. So Diane has been invited by the the Fayads to go to Saint-Tropez and she's looking for something to entertain the boys, but also get her away from the UK as Charles celebrates Camilla, her 50th birthday. What we don't show, we we did film a lot of this, but we didn't end up using it in series five. Fayad invites her on Mm -hmm. his yacht. He doesn't own a yacht yet. So he invites her. So Fayad... She says yes, and he's got to go find a yacht. So he goes down, he buys the Yonicle. He buys it? Yes, he does. Wow. And get it fitted up, you know, essentially how how he would think a princess would want it. And they fly out on his helicopter and then his private jet down to Saint-Tropez. And this starts a rather frenetic period for Diana. Yeah. Where she's seen as jet-setting all the time. She's in the company of someone who has already been implied to be I mean, investigated by the government to be a fraud. He's been caught doing cash for question scandal under major. People are looking at this like, is this Jackie Kennedy and Aristotle Onassis? Like you just want to be around money and you just want to be feted, essentially. Mm. So 
The public is not particularly happy about her choice of company, but, you know, she's single. She's looking for some sort of entertainment for her kids to take them away. I mean, at the same time, she doesn't quite get that her kids actually more prefer the Balmoral privacy. Yeah. It's not just about like blood sports and being with family. It's that nobody photographs them. So they are uncomfortable really from the beginning. They are uncomfortable with the the luxury of this lifestyle, the kind of Riviera lifestyle. It's just mm. not their speed. And and then particularly when Dodie enters the scene, when Fayed calls him in and says, come, you need to come up and be with us. She spends a lot of her time jet setting whilst also trying to establish herself as this humanitarian that she's now decided, okay, maybe this is my path forward. Yeah. Blair is now in, and so she's courting Blair. She's been courting Tony Blair for a long time. I Do love you- that scene, actually, when they when she goes to his house and they're playing football. Yeah. And the cowboy boots comment. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, she goes there to then have a discussion, and they're like, why did she bring William? It's, this is very odd. She actually plans for that to happen before he meets for the first time with Charles on the Britannia, which we show at the end of season five. And it has to be swapped because they realize protocol. Okay, we can't be shown to favor her. She's not even in the royal family anymore. What is this relationship? And she goes there to pressure him for a more formal, roving ambassadorial role. Remind me, why is Princess Diana even coming? She asked us for a meeting. Given who she is, I could hardly say no. Oh, you were never going to say no. Remember last time you put on your cowboy boots, especially. Did I? Yes. And wore tight jeans. Tony Blair, Sheriff of Downing Street. (laughs) I mean, listen, Diana has made a decision. I'm not leaving the public eye. I want to stay in the sort of role of a humanitarian, not politician, but she's testing the waters a little bit too much on that issue. She's getting into a lot of hot water over speaking out against certain governments and... Like, you know, she'll she'll compliment Labour on something and say that the other people were hopeless. Okay, well, then we know who those other people are. (laughs) But she's definitely, I think, getting a bigger sense of her capacity than maybe anyone's willing to give her. So she thinks she can go solve Northern Ireland. She even talks about going to China for for Blair, you know, and it's like, okay, we we know that you have we want to harness your power because you have that power. Mm -hmm. But. She's at the point right now where it's a little bit, that's what I mean about frenetic. It's kind of all over the place and she hasn't focused. So she's hoping Blair, as this modernizer who's swept through the nation and he's brought in new labor, it's really worth saying, labor didn't win the 1997 election. New labor won the 1997 election. And there's a difference there. They focus much more on the kind of growing middle class, not the old working class Mm -hmm. of the labor voters. They made many changes to their kind of basic foundation of voters and and their rules in the Labour Party. I think John Major was just actually on a podcast talking about how when he won the 1992 election and Tony Blair became shadow home secretary under John Smith that year, he knew he would not win the next one. And by the time Tony Blair comes in in 94... This is when John Major's conservatives were still in power, but he was leader of the opposition, the Labour Party. Yeah, when John Smith suddenly dies... He's so, I mean, everybody calls him prime minister. You know, that's it. So they have to wait three more years for an election, but it's it. Everybody knows Tony Blair is prime minister. And from that moment on, Charles and Diana are both courting him. Diana at some private parties because they have some friends that Mm -hmm. cross over and Charles slightly more formally. but Mm. um, And Diana knows 
I represent more of what new labor does, right? Yeah. I'm going to sweep away tradition. I'm going to make public service more intimate. I'm going to open up the royal family. I want to teach William to live in a democracy with where he meets lots of other kids who don't come from his background, et cetera, et cetera. So she believes she has this intrinsic connection with what new labor represents. It's interesting because one of the reasons that she wants to get away from the UK, as you mentioned earlier, is because it's Camilla's 50th mm -hmm. and Charles is throwing this big birthday party for her. And, you know, part of that is to get, you know, his steps towards that point, but wanting to get his mum's approval. Has she ever met Camilla by this point? No. And it's, it will be years before she does. I think to a lot of people, Charles is an unrepentant adulterer. He doesn't say sorry mm -hmm. at any point for the end of his marriage or for seeing Camilla all that time. I mean, you have to remember, Diana never said sorry for her many affairs. And she actually, in the, her Bashir Panorama interview, lies about most of them, <laughs> just doesn't admit to them. So the idea that he's never said, I'm really sorry that my relationship has sort of busted up mm -hmm. this ideal family unit. He never repents at any point. So I think that really bothers them. And it does, It you know, at this point, Robert Fellows is still her private secretary. That's Diana's brother-in-law, FYI. So, And he's very conservative. When he hears about the 50th birthday party that Charles is going to throw Camilla, he says, essentially, if you do this, I'm going to advise the queen that you have to get rid of Camilla. That's it or we, there's no moving forward. And I think that's the advice she's getting, right? The advice she's getting is this is the woman who's destroying the monarchy and the family. Wow. And that actually just spurs Charles on to make it an even more spectacular yeah, yeah. event because- And did it happen? And that, yeah. So he gets the press to come. He stage manages the her entrance. He tells the press in a way he never has before. Here's where you should stand. You know, we really want to get these good shots. They dance till four in the morning. It's very open and loving and a launch. It's supposed to be a launch for her. Yeah. And what you see at this time is the press pinning them against each other a little yeah. bit. But also you do see a Diana fixation on the on this launch of Camilla. You know, she has that weird moment that we show where she goes to the press in Saint-Tropez, says, hey, back off. My boys, you know, really don't like this press attention, which is very true. But then she sort of says, I have something amazing that's going to happen. Just watch this space sort of thing. And she's really teasing the press and confusing them. She's making jokes about, what if I popped out of Camilla's cake at the party? You know, you can tell. it's. And she talks to her therapists and her healers and things. It brings back a lot of anxiety and insecurity that Charles Open is now willing wins. to move forward publicly. Yeah. So it's it's a really, again, frenetic time. I didn't know you were so interested in fashion, Nick. Did you choose it deliberately? Deliberately, huh? Well, you must be aware that today's Mrs. Parker Bowles' birthday and a big party is being thrown for her this evening by the Prince of Wales. You know, I'm having trouble hearing you. I'll tell you what, you leave me and my boys alone, please, and you're all going to get a big surprise with the next thing I do. Oh, I what's that? What do you mean a big surprise? You'll see. Forget it, no boys, come on. Still to come, I'll speak to Imelda Staunton about portraying the Queen for the final time in this emotional season. But first, here's the director of this episode, Alex Gabassi. For you, episode one, what are the big themes? What is this episode about for you? If you're going to talk about themes, I think it's acceptance and 
belonging, I suppose. Mm. In the title, the title actually hints to something that we worked on, which plays the opposite of what infers. Mm -hmm. You could say that Diana is a deeper Saranam Grata, but also Camilla in that case is the one as well. So they're both in that space as well as Kelly. Mm. And in the end, you will find that Camilla is the one will be accepted and Diana will find a place for her in the heart of that family, even though it's just for a brief moment in her life. But the belonging, I think, comes in that space where Diana finds finally something, okay, I can just, these people will just not judge me, I'll just be here, be me. Yeah. So that was something that we were, we discussed. We see Elizabeth as Diana in, in this and just that, you know, it's summer of 1997 and she's from everything from the vibrancy of the, the colours and, but also her performance, she's in a good place. I think it was, and I, I never shared this with Peter or anyone, but I, I remember talking with Elizabeth Debicki and I felt, we felt that this had to bring Diana to that fun side of her. I was determined that she should be not only for the little that I had to work with her, one episode only, but I needed, we needed to see her fun side, the, her family side, how much she loved the kids because later on in the next two or three episodes, this would be taken from her mm. and especially taken from the kids. So that was important. And the fact that you talk about color, there was, yes, that adds to the whole picture. It's it's how, you know, subtextually <laughs> you're playing with that. You, yeah. you just go to the sun, you go outside. The idea of having two locations for that, uh, because I could have played everything in that yacht. And yet we we're always very keen on having the villa yeah. to ground a little bit more, to bring it more to a homely place where you can feel that it's not a impersonal an place, island yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah it just seems like a good environment for her you know in terms of the way that elizabeth kind of physically plays it as well in terms of how comfortable relaxed almost at home she feels in that hmm. and how open she is mm -hmm. yeah i don't know if you noticed but it's always for me because i i know and i see that and i i saw i saw in the editing but how many times she's just barefooted <laughs> yeah. and, and it's, it's just I think that is, shows how much she wanted to play that kind of just freedom Mohammed's on this journey where he's desperate to be accept, you know acceptance you're talking about approved and you know he's got a plan and he brings Dodie into this as well and I was just interested to get your take on the conversations that you had with Khaled about Dodie's actions and his motivation when you know his dad's sort of bringing him into the plan and... Hmm. For me, it was very important. Two things were important about Halid and Doji. One was that we had enough scenes and situations in which Diana could see a man there that she wasn't used to. No matter what the real Doji is or was, we don't know much about it. We know a few things. Halid knows more because he's spoken to many other people that knew him, but it was important. I, I wanted him to be sexy. I wanted him to be loving and warm and uh, attentive. Mm. 
And that also showed Diana observing that. The other aspect of, of Dodi's journey in this episode was to show that he's, he has agency, even though his father has the final say. But I was very concerned, and both of us, that uh, Dodi should be a man, not a, not a child. So these two things were very important. So these were the conversations we were having. They're amazing Halliday. together on screen, Elizabeth and Harlan. Yeah, that's the other thing. You needed to get to that point where it's not overdone, mm -hmm. but there was the flirt because he's still in in a relationship yeah. with, uh, with Kelly. Kelly. And and so for us, how much would you, in the case of that piano, for instance, the only the reason the piano was there was that because when I visit the location there was a piano in that room and I wanted to shoot in that room and there was no way we could take the piano out because as you may know, in boats, <laughs> yachts, pianos are boated because they cannot move around. <laughs> yeah. So I said, okay, if there is a piano in this room, let's check, has Diana ever played piano? And then the res wonderful research department <gasps> said, oh yeah, she did play. Oh, okay, good. So what did she play? Oh, she needs some Rachmaninoff and then, no, 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 okay. What about? And then we try a few things, and then in the end, uh, she did play a Schubert. Yeah. The actual she she learned Elizabeth, Elizabeth Bigot, learned to play a Schubert, which was something that I liked personally. And then when we we added the scene, it felt Peter said, "Look, I think we need something just just a few notes here and there, something very casual that shows that she knows, but she's not willing to show too much. Nice. And then we end up with something that we, uh, Martin Phipps composed, and then she did that. So in wow. the end, that was how that scene was created. For me, it was, looks classic, and yeah. he had to run inside a boat, and he had to during the day. It, it just, she's revealing just, something about herself. She's though. revealing something about herself, and yet she's a bit shy about it, and then he's shy about it. So you have two souls that have a similar vibe and they do say those things they do say oh we have you know oh my father is like that my father, i could use some of your father's you know caring concern and you know and i think they they are two little little broken souls that they find in that uh, you know fracture away yeah you know to to meet one thing about the piano scene which i love at the very end when she stands up and that's that's totally the Bicky, the Bicky style. You know, <laughs> she stands up, and I said, "Look, this is a there's a tiny place to pass," and then Khalid, normally because he's a gentleman all the way, he would have given her, you know, the space, space. for her to yeah. pass. But I said, "No, no, 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 you stay there because you have to do something just." To and then it's a t tiny space, and and they're both. So she goes there, and then as she's passing, she just plays one note, bing. In that piano, and that's so lovely because it, it's it, that's a, a very lovely subtle flirt yeah. that they're having, but they are not willing yet to show us yeah. too much. I wrote to him every week from boarding school. I ironed his shirts, I baked him cakes, even married the Prince of Wales. Anything to make him notice me, be proud of me. And to think our fathers are such good friends. And then on the other side of the world, you have this, you know, Charles and Camilla, Camilla's 50th birthday party, which you show that, you show 
the history of that relationship. You show that kind of genuine connection that these two characters have. Yeah. Well, we we had a a, a great opportunity there to do a, a kind of a little workshop for the actors in that opening of the party in which they are walking around the guests mm -hmm. and talking. And that was totally improvised. We put all the 200 guests, whatever we had, and then I just told Dom and uh, Olivia to just just walk around and this is what you have and I want you to have as much as possible that rapport. And it was brilliant because they're so brilliant, both two. And and then they just walked around, you know, you know, cracking jokes here and there, and talk about other people. And all. so when you see that happening, you go, okay, this is working, and this is the moment because you don't have many, you know, that is so natural and mm -hmm. that needed to be. The dance scene as well. I love watching them dance. I mean, was that choreographed? Was it? Nope. Oh wow. That was, the, the, what happened there was this, uh, we had the music, that was that music. So everybody was really excited about that. And that was the end of that day. And I had, I'd say half an hour. And then it was either the dance or the cake. And I said, okay, let's do the dance. And as the dance was going, and it was about two minutes to finish the day and I had to be really precise. Wow. I said, you know what? <laughs> bring that cake now. What? Let's dance. Bring, bring the cake. No, they were dancing. <laughs> yeah. Bring the cake. So there is no stop for the oh, cake. Oh, wow. So they were dancing. Suddenly a cake appears with two people. And they start going, nah, nah, nah. you know, the whole crowd start singing happy birthday. And then, and then they stop. So the actors are actually reacting to what was happening in real time. So there was no even a suggestion of the director saying, oh, this is the moment now, please, I want you to do this, this and that. It's oh, like wow. a real party. So these are the things, if you don't do it, you won't have it. If I had said, cut, let's do the cake, my first aid would say, oh, thanks, Alex, but no thanks. We cannot do it. So I had just to go, okay, don't cut, <laughs> go in and go all the way. And we got it, it was really beautiful. I must say, he's done it beautifully. The house is gorgeous. And the happy couple seem very happy. Good. Mm. Do you know, I don't think I've ever seen Charles so relaxed and confident and entirely himself. Is that what this telephone call is about? Are you saying I should have been there? I think starting to show support for your son in this matter would be no bad thing. And finally, I sat down on set with the incredible Imelda Staunton. I have got to say, watching you in this season, this final season of The Crown, it's just been absolutely glorious. What well, feels watching you've had a great time doing this. Mm. Have you had a great time doing yeah, this? Yeah, I've loved my favourite times of the day are between action and cut. Those are my favourite times. Those times and being in the makeup chair with Una making me into Her Majesty. Mm -hmm. That's it. I absolutely, I really ch cherished this time because maybe I was slightly less frightened than last yeah. season. And I'm, I am slightly bereft already, you know. It's literally hours since we finished. <laughs> it's sort of hours since we finished. And uh, I was able to feel a bit more in a way 
in inside it than last time because I think I was just, as I said, too frightened. So this time felt I'd sort of, I was more grounded. Yeah. And that, you know, with the stories, I would give the story, the real events that this is all, you know, hanging on. The journey of, of the Queen, uh, you know, the rise of Diana, the monarchy, you know, in real life, took a back seat, mm. no doubt about it, and Diana rose. And having the Queen disappear and then start to re-emerge, which is sort of what happened, was a great journey for me. When you finished season five, had you read the scripts to six yet? No, no, no. Wow. No, no, not at all. So no. what was your reaction when you first read season six scripts? Well, I, I sort of knew vaguely mm -hmm. what it would be, and you know they're going to change. And I think there's no doubt that the final episode was altered because of the death of the Queen. Wow. I was so, going to ask, because yeah. when we spoke last, <clears throat> it was so lovely because you, this character who's the inspiration to, for this character that Peter's written is Queen Elizabeth II passed since the last time we spoke. And you talked so highly about, you know, how you admired her mm. and the admiration that was there from as a human. Mm. And just whether, you know, her passing had in any way impacted your approach to coming back in for this season. And Well, we had started filming in September and... And then the Queen died one when we were when we were filming that day. I remember, and um, and I came home and I was absolutely inconsolable, and more and that sort of took me by sort of it shocked me my mm. my reaction, and I mean I, I've always felt very extremely responsible playing it, but I then witnessed over those ten days and witnessed at, at her funeral. You know, why so many people are affected by this? Because I, I just feel that she, whether you like the monarchy or don't like the monarchy, this woman turned up every day. And, you know, and I feel when, you know, I, the actress, do a, a long run in the West End, I turn up every day. And that is the job. And to have someone do that for <laughs> what, 70 years, you know, for so long. Mm. And, and I feel felt that people, whether they liked them or not, just thought, thank you for just yeah. being there the whole time and um, and doing it, I feel, with such sort of dignity and grace and also her lack of, for me, her lack of vanity I adore and that hat, coat, bag, gone and that's it. That's what I do. I don't go, I hate the way I look in this. I hate the... And the fact that you know, there's a woman that everyone thinks this woman was the. She had her own face. She let her hair do this, <laughs> and I think, gosh, you know, because that's it. Feels to me that she wasn't. She knew she had to be a constant. Mm -hmm. If she was always changing and had bigger lips and had da da da, <laughs> she wasn't the same person. Mm -hmm. And to be the same person, and and I think in society today, everyone's struggling so much with. Be who you are, but be young, right? Be who you are, but look different, right? Uh, so this person just was her own person now, and I and I think that's to do with her. No, there might have been PR people, but no one told her how to look, yeah, or how to be. And I and I'm now just talking about 
the surface. But the thing that I discovered in all the research was, and I didn't know about her, was how important her faith was to her. And I think that gave her a real inner strength and ability to just not be pushed from side to side or go with that flow and you need to do this and you need just go that's all people want is me to be what I stand for she was almost faith for people wasn't she in a way Mm. she was the epitome of that for so many people I think yeah yeah and we see in this season as well her really relying on that faith the way that Peter's kind of written and celebrated the strength of this woman Mm. but I love as well in this season how he's also celebrated how much she loves her family, which we haven't really focused that much on, particularly her grandsons. Mm -hmm. She loved being a granny and Peter's really, the character he's written, he really celebrates that and these beautiful relationships, particularly with William. Mm. And for you working with these young actors, with Ed in particular, what what was that like? How dare they come in and be (laughs) completely right from (laughs) tip... Tip of of his toes to the top of his head, not even for a moment struggling, not even for a moment trying to find it, just coming in and boof, delivering it. What a nerve. Um, You get two Williams, actually. I get get two Williams. You know, and it's just, I mean, that's a privilege alone to sort of see these young actors come in and be so dedicated and so hardworking and so, you know, so on it. And, And I think you know, note to self, I think older actors should always embrace what's coming next. And um, blimey, they were great. Mm. So I loved doing those scenes with those with those guys because, um, you know, it's so, ref- it, it, all the just reflections on, on our own lives, on our, you know, you, you're getting older as an actor and these younger actors are coming out. And I don't know where they get their confidence from because I know, uh, you know, I, it took a long time mm. for me. And that's to be applauded. I really, really think that they, you know, i I'll never be one of those actors again. Well, you see, in my day, you no, <laughs> that's gone. Let's get the new ones up and ready. And for them, I think they really, they really cherished, you know, you, you start with this sort of writing mm. at this sort of level of the crew and the, hopefully the other actors you're working with, you know, we all want to work with better people to make us better. And I don't think that is necessarily to do with age. It's to do with just your ability to engage with, you know, another mm. actor, whatever age they are, you are on your, it's a level playing field. And uh, they were just great it's so interesting seeing from the often you know episode one straight away um we see kind of her the character soften slightly so charles comes to his mum to to queen elizabeth to to kind of ask for well he wants her to come to camilla's birthday party yeah she flat refuses yeah and he's crushed by that yeah however she's got her secret spies in there margaret yeah at the party who's feeding back to her and mm. Margaret, obviously, with her experiences, mm. can see what Charles has got there. Mm. Feeds back to Queen Elizabeth, who then asks how the party went, which yeah. means so much to Charles. It's right. kind of, mm. it's a gift for him, mm. really. Why the change of heart in the character? She's not an unkind person. Mm. I think it was very difficult for her to accept 
Camilla and very difficult for her to be seen to be saying this relationship's okay. Mm. So her duty came before, oh, you're, my son is so happy, of course I'll be there. Couldn't do it. And I think because she's not, I don't think the Queen ever thinks about herself or reflects on, oh, how do I feel? Oh, I, I'm upset, goes, right, I have to do that. But it's your son, I have to do that mm. as Queen. Mm. So then saying, how was it, was, I'll just ask how... You know, I, I think it was difficult for her to do both. Difficult for her to refuse to go and difficult for her to say, did you have a nice time? <laughs> so, you know, how do you exist with that? Yeah. How do you be that person? Mm. So I think that's, yeah, it's difficult. How was the 50th birthday? Oh, um, it was lovely, thank you. Good. Sorry you had rain. Oh, did it rain? Didn't it? Um, well, if it did, I didn't think anybody noticed. Happy to hear that. And happy it went well. And I just wanted to say, I'm happy you're so manifestly happy. Thank you. Well, good night. Good night. I'm Edith Bowman and I want to give special thanks to our guests on this episode, Imelda Staunton, Peter Morgan, Annie Salzberger and Alex Gabassi. The Crown, the official podcast, is produced by Netflix and Sony Music Entertainment in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join me next time for episode two of season six, titled Two Photographs. Diana's blossoming romance with Dodie Fired sees them return to the south of France in secret. Little do they know, a paparazzi photograph of them together is about to change everything. I'm just calling to let you know that apparently there are some photos of us on the boat being offered to newspapers. I thought you said no when you were there. I know. It makes no sense. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.